0: Welcome to this meeting um, of the Alliance of Workers' Liberty, this is a meeting that's been organised by London comrades and um, tonight we're celebrating 50 years of women's liberation or rather we're talking about what we still need to win, what we still need to fight for as well as the history. So um, we've got two speakers, um, Jill Matford who is going to give an overview and also Kelly Rogers who is going to talk about some particular aspects of the women's movement and the sort of legacies.
1: Okay, so my name is Jill Mountford, as Cathy may have said, and um, I'm a member of the uh, the Alliance for Workers' Mm Liberty. And um, we're socialist feminists. We're for the liberation of humanity, for organising society based on need, not profit. And we don't think there can be any socialism without women's liberation or any women's liberation without socialism. That's our kind of starting point, if you like. Now, as Cathy said, tonight's meeting is to mark the anniversary and to consider um, women's liberation over the last 50 years. Um, I find it hard to start there, in fact. And um, I'm going to start with, in in 1847, I'm not going to dwell on it for long, but I'm just going to start with this because it's a woman called Anne Knight and she was a Chartist woman, and she was um, she was gaining her voice and confidence towards the end of the Chartist movement. Um, the, the movement kind of sort of ended around 1848. And she was arguing with the Chartist men who dominated the movement, of course. Um, she was arguing with the men saying that, you, we, we, you, you say we're fighting for universal suffrage, but we should be fighting for true universal suffrage, and this should include women. And she said that, um, I want to ask you a question, how can man be free if woman is a slave? And that seems to me to be not just a question about having the right to vote, but um, a fundamental question about how humanity can be free um, if, if half of humanity is enslaved in some way. Um, so that, that, that's kind of my starting point. Now, um, I'm going to start here to look at the 50th anniversary of the Women's Liberation Movement. And centre to this um, picture on the screen, the centre photograph is of the Ford Dagenham women in 1968. This is the strike for regrading that then developed into a a demand for equal pay. And these women were um, an an inspiration to the um, birth of the Women's Liberation Movement in 1970. I think the important thing here is to remind people of the context, as I'm sure you know, but this is a context of... So, um, in the centre of this screen is a photograph of the four Dagenham women, the inspiration, or one of the inspirations, um, for the Women's Liberation Conference in February 1970. Um, This strike was initially a strike about regrading for the women to get better pay, and then it went on to um, a fight about um, equal pay. Now, there's interesting things about this, but I just want to say something about the context, I think you may have heard, maybe the context, there's lots of things going on around the world, Um, social and political movements to fight for um, civil rights, women's rights in America, as I said, May 68 is going on, so big stuff happening. Um, This um, strike by before Dagenham women was the um, catalyst, or one of the catalysts, to the Equal Pay Act that... um, The Labour government drove in in, or brought in in 1970, although it wasn't um, in force until um, 1975, thus giving the bosses plenty of time to find ways around that act. On this screen as well, we've got um, a picture of the London um, tram and bus workers strike. This is a a women striking in 1918, towards the end of the First World War, and they were striking for um, an equal pay rise to the men, and for, um, for um, paying conditions equal to the men and their workplace. And they won that strike. That's 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago now. And I want to take you to um, the two pictures in the corners where women are wearing 1950s clothes. This is women in the, um, in the teaching profession and the civil service who won equal pay in the 1950s. And then down in the corner in the colour photograph, where you've got that woman shouting and her, her arm raised, is um, 2019, yeah? More than a hundred years after the bus women, um, 50 years after the, um, the, the Ford Dagenham women, fighting for equal pay. Um, their battle is a 12-year battle for equal pay, and it's a 12-year battle in the public sector against the Labour local council in Glasgow. So um, the fight for women's liberation is not um, a straightforward path and our gains are not always solid gains under capitalism. That's the inspiration. Another inspiration, another thing that was going on at the time in in 1968 is a group of working-class women in Hull who were um, not like lots of women's groups um, that flare up in stripes where men in male-dominated industries um, set up support groups to Um, defend the livelihood of those um, men in that that industry. These women were fighting for the lives of the men in that industry. In February 1968, um, three tragic um, trawlership, um, um, three tragic tragedies occurred where um, 68 trawler men lost their lives. And it was about health and safety. And Lil Balocca, the woman in the bottom screen and, and in the top screen with the dark hair, known as Big Lil. She was one of the wives of the, of, of the trauma men and she started a health and safety campaign and this is amazing. In two weeks she gathered 10,000 signatures. She got an audience with um, Harold Wilson and forced the Labour government then to um, take on the charter for health and safety on the docks. And before they did take that charter on she would stand on the docks. As ships were due to go out and if she felt the health and safety hadn't been met she threw herself on the ground on the threshold of those ships um so that the ships couldn't leave the dock right these are brave courageous women um not with a women's liberation movement or, or, or declared doing what they have to do to defend um, themselves as as part of the working class so here we have on the third slide um the birth of the women's liberation movement in the top corner where you can see women sitting in rows, it's the women who attended that conference in 1970. And I think this, I, I, I think this is a movement worth celebrating. I think it's, it's, it really needs to be understood. I think, I think, I think it was a tremendous thing. Um, they, 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 they were a group of women um, who organized the conference, San Alexandra, um, Sheila Robotham and others. And they um socialist women, socialist feminists, and they were sick of um, not getting the voice heard, they were sick of being treated as sectaries they were sick of being treated like sex objects in, 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 in left organizations. And whilst they agreed with the politics of those organizations, they, there was something lacking. Fem- socialist feminism was lacking in those organizations and in the wider movement. Organized this conference, at that conference came the original four demands. Um, and, and, um, um, so, 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 so the Women's Liberation Movement was born. Sally Alexander says at the time that she didn't feel like that this was the absolute beginning. And in fact, it was a culmination of things. And it's the things that I've perhaps referred to before. And it certainly wasn't, it absolutely wasn't the beginning, the absolute absolutely beginning of anything. Um, the photograph in the bottom corner where it's snowing, this is um, a demonstration that they organised. And the February of nineteen seventy-one, um, I think it was for International Women's Day. But as you can see, um, the big banner that's there is "Free Contraception and Abortion on Demand." Uh, just at this point, there was a, I was playing a song at the beginning of the slides, and it was Loretta Lynn, um, and the song is called "The Pill." And we all know, you know, the, 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 the pill is the contraceptive pill. It's the pill we're talking about. And um, the pill was um, developed in the nineteen fifties. It came. Um, on stream for women in 1961. Um, It was um, for married women only at the time, and it didn't become widely available for women, unmarried women, young women, uh, until 1974 in the UK. Loretta Lynn is um, credited with by um, health services in in, in, in the States as doing more with that song to encourage women in, from from poor working class backgrounds to use the contraceptive pill than any of their um, public information, any of their information that they distributed in, th- th- through the doors of the houses. And um, it's a good, it's a, it's a good song. Look it up on YouTube. It's an exceedingly good song. So, San Alexander, this is not the absolute begin, the absolute beginning. On this screen now, I've got some pictures of stuff that was happening in the 1960s in popular culture. This is really important to me because, um, again, you know, I think the Women's Liberation Movement is fantastic and I think the things that they raised and, and, and a lot of things that they did was extremely good. But stuff was happening. And I want to draw your attention, first of all, to Sheila Delaney. She's the woman, the young woman sitting on, leaning against the wall in, in the backs of some Terry styles, in Salford. Um, in 1958, at the age of 19, Sheila Delaney wrote... Um, incredibly important play as far as i'm concerned and it was a taste of honey it was a play she was a lady by the way failed her 11 plus she was from a working class family father was a a, worked on the bosses of irish origin and she wrote this play having been to to, to with the school to see a play by terence Rattigan, and with all the confidence of youth she walked out and said i can do something better than that and she went away and she wrote a taste of honey and a taste of honey this is 1958 manchester salford and a taste of honey is about a young working class woman on the threshold of leaving school a mother's a bit of a drunk but a bit useless and she um falls in love with um a sailor and um she gets pregnant and of course she never sees the sailor again and um so she's now a, a young um woman about to become a mother having just left school, probably with no qualifications. And um, a friend of hers who she makes friends with, um, Jeffrey, is um, a young gay man and he takes on the role for a period of being the surrogate father. So this is this is a play um, about working class lives with that show great assertion, that show confidence, that show all sorts of beautiful things, that show all sorts of cracks that are within those families. Um, involve sex outside of marriage, school-aged girls, black men, and gay men, yeah? So, yeah, I think she was right. I think she could do better than Terrence Rattigan. In the corner, we've got Quincy Jones, sorry, in the centre, upper centre, we've got Quincy Jones, and we've got a woman called Leslie Gore. She's a young Jewish woman. At the time, um, uh, she, uh, she's 17 at the time, and she, and she sings an amazing song. She, the song is written for her, but it's an utterly amazing song called and don't tell me what to do look it up it becomes it becomes the family anthem for a whole period in the 60s for for women um if i can just take the time to just read you a, a couple of lines from this song don't tie me down because because i'd never say don't tell me what to because i'd never stay don't tell me what to say don't tell me what to do just let me be myself that's all i'll ask of you don't tell me what to say please don't tell me who to go out with Don't put me on display, because you don't own me. Don't try to change me in any way, you don't own me. These are the lyrics of this song. It's a brilliant song, but this is 1963. So the Women's Liberation Movement in 1970 is building on all of this stuff, yeah? Um, Aretha Franklin speaks for itself. Sylvia Plath, Margaret Drabble's novel, The Millstone, about abortion, about about, 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 um, the, the stresses and difficulties. about getting pregnant while you're an undergraduate in Margaret Drabble's novel. These are things things that are in popular culture at the time. The times are changing. Okay, um, my next slide is um, of some struggles going on in the um, middle years of the Women's Liberation Women's Liberation Movement period, so from 1970 to 1978 is the Women's Liberation Movement period. And these slides are sort of mid-range of that. Now, loads and loads of stuff were happening all around the country, women's groups setting up, women's action committees, um, women taking over and running community centres, the National Abortion Campaign was set up out of the, the Women's Liberation Movement, and loads of publications sprung up, and one of those publications in 1973 was Spare Rib. And Spare Rib, I think, was, 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 um, I think was pretty good. It, it, it tried to do lots and lots of things, but it, it is absolutely committed to um, covering working-class women's industrial struggles, um, um, work, working-class women's issues, covering issues of women of race, and, and what have you. It was, it was, it was all run very, very good. And I want to compare and tr- contrast, on the screen, we've got a copy of the, the newspaper, Votes for Women, Votes for Women was the newspaper of the Women's Social and Political Union, um, the WSPU, Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst's organisation in the fight for votes. Although this is the, the organisation of this period that gets the most publicity, that's the most known, that's the most lauded, um, it wasn't necessarily the, the most important in many respects. However, they, they produced this newspaper called Votes for Women. And I've got a copy of the 1910 issue on the screen. And, um, if you compare and contrast the spare rib, spare rib for every week of the Trico strike and the Grunwitz strike, it carried um, something about that strike in, in, in the pages of, of, of its magazine. If you compare and contrast that to Votes for Women and an incredibly important strike for a minimum wage, um, the, 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 the Chainmakers in Cradle East, 1910, you can search through the pages of Votes for Women and never will you see one word about that dispute, yeah? And it says something about, um, you know, that is v- v- very much, um, you know, one of the criticisms le- um, levelled at the women's liberation movement of 1970s is it was white and middle class. And, you know, to some degree that is true, perhaps to a large degree. Um, but that's a chrism that could certainly, certainly be leveled at um, the women's social and political union, and certainly the organs of that, of, of that movement. So on the screen, we've got the Trico women at the top. There's a woman wearing a stripy twin set, very fashionable at the time, with her thumb raised. Um, the Trico workers, was, it, was, it was a battle for equal pay. It was a battle at one period against the men in the factory. It was a battle against the union that was representing them. And um, it was a battle that they won. Um, we've got also we've got the Grunwick women um, again. For, I'm sure most people know about this, but it was a, an amazing dispute, a dispute led by um, Asian women who showed themselves to be courageous and brave beyond, I think, beyond imagination, and and, and left the um, orthodox official labour movement standing agape. Um, so. Let's just quickly go back to the Women's Liberation Movement, of I might. At centre stage there, we've got Sheila Rowbotham with um, a Bob. And um, around that are three of Sheila roebotham's books. She's a prolific writer, overall ex- incredibly good stuff. Only oh, no, two of her books, one's Juliet Mitchell's book as well. And either side of this, we've got the divisions that started to develop in the Women's Liberation Movement. Um, um, Wages for work Banner, and we've got Selma James. I know um, Kelly's covering the for Housework, so I'm going to say nothing more about that but in the top screen we've got Sheila Jeffries who emerged in the women's liberation movement she's um, a professor now she was um, a lecturer at at Leeds University I think it was and in 1977 she puts a paper to the women's liberation conference and um, all hell breaks loose and she's she's launching a new brand of feminism revolutionary feminism and it's about political lesbianism and Basically, the, the problem isn't capitalism, the problem is men. And just below that I've got a picture of Evangela Dawkins and um, um, I put those two together because it, it was a developing um, set of ideas that men are, men are the problem, patriarchy is the problem, capitalism is much less of a problem, and um, male violence, which is a constant threat for all women at all times, is, 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 is a central issue. So those are kind of the divisions that are developing in the women's liberation movement. Um, we can discuss those um, after, later, I'm sure. So my next picture. We can discuss the twos and pros, if anyone wants to, of the women's liberation movement. But now on the screen, we've got a, a picture of a whole host of um, struggles going on. Centre stage is the, um, the miners' strike, 84, 85. And, um, women against pit closures and those women are not dancing they are taking on the coppers and the police um, part of the the british states doing a job on behalf of capitalism um, are pushing the women around and um, preventing them from moving around this pit village and the women um, are taking them on no problem Um, also this picture we've got a, a group of asian and black women at the top there and Defending Ellington Hospital. Southwell Black Sisters. Southall Black Sisters comes out um, of the end of the Women's Liberation Movement in 1979. And they they, they established themselves as a direct result of um, a a, a march that had had taken place where people were um, defending themselves and the streets against the National Front. And um, a guy called Blair Peach. Um gets killed in this um, this the, the, the fracas that breaks out in this demonstration. And Southall black sisters established themselves um, as a result of the of, of this activity. And um, several black sisters are amazing, and they are still going today, forty years on, and they have done all sorts of brilliant things to raise um, awareness and to defend the lives of women who have suffered domestic violence. And arranged marriages and forced marriages and women who have killed men who have spent decades being violent to them in self-defense they've done brilliant work and uh, down in the bottom corner a campaign that they um launched in the mid-90s was women against fundamentalism and um again i think a really groundbreaking courageous um campaign sort of thing that we could do with seeing plenty of now i feel um another picture there is um women on the waterfront, a woman's wearing a t-shirt saying, wow, with a women's symbol in the middle. And um, women on the waterfront, again, I'm sure took their inspiration from women against pit closures. They were women, the wives and girlfriends and partners of dockers who got sacked in Liverpool in the mid nineties. And um, inspirational bunch went around the country, raising awareness of their strike and um, their sacked men and women. Um, you know, very, very inspirational. Down in the bottom corner is um, the Sorry Squad. The Sorry Squad, um, I was um, lying on the sofa um, with the mumps when the 1970 Women's Liberation Conference happened. I was nine years old um, and I became a feminist in the late 70s, largely inspired by music, in fact, and my own experience, obviously. And these women, the Sari Squad women, were a big thing in the early 80s. And the thing that, uh, when I was at college, um, people were fighting f- to, you know, to get support for. And they set up to defend a woman called Afia Begum, a poor, um, working-class woman who had come to this country with a two-year-old kid. And when she got here, um, she came on a visa legally. When she got here, she was told that her husband had died and therefore she was being deported, she was being sent back. And um, that is as outrageous as I'm sure everyone's thinking. And they sent this campaign to defend Afia. Um, Tory government did what you'd expect a Tory government to do, um, bastards as they are. They um, did a swoop on Afia in the middle of the night, and they deported her regardless of the campaign and regardless of um, the support that she had to stay. So these are... The, the, I I, I said at the beginning that there's lots of things happening in the 60s and the Women's Liberation Movement was kind of the next logical step of those things, bringing things together in a movement. And the Women's Liberation Movement kind of collapsed in 1978 in the midst of um, sort of splits and schisms and big political differences about feminism. Um, And these things continued. And it's all part and parcel, you know, the Women's Liberation Movement, made some of these things possible, gave confidence to some of these women uh, 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 that they're on the screen right, right now. But I'm sure you know much would have happened regardless of that movement, but it, it all, it all, it all added up and it all helps. I'm sure. Um, so my next screen is um, a plug. At the end of the meeting in the foyer you'll be able to buy our books, um, by Socialist Feminism and um, a copy of Women's Fight Back. Um, these are publications that we produce. Women's Fight Back is a publication that Worker's Liberty produces, um, not as frequent as we might like, but none I think we've got one coming out next month. Kelly um, edits that publication. Um, but this, the history of Women's Fight Back is that we, um, the predecessor to Worker's Liberty, um, Socialist Organiser, um, the Women's Socialist Organiser organised a conference at. Um, the beginning of Thatcherism when Thatcher became Prime Minister in 1979 to try and regroup the left after the women's liberation movement um, fell apart and 500 women came to that conference and um, for for a short period um, Women's Fight Back was a a very lively and buoyant organisation and it produced a newspaper called Women's Fight Back and intervened in the miners' strike as Women's Fight Back. So very quickly now i 'm trying to move into um, the um, more recent period um, just want to highlight some of the things that are going on or have have, have happened in um, the women 's movement or you know women organizing and I think um, the focus e fifteen mums campaign for housing for decent housing uh, in the nine was it, in the, was it, no, 2007? it was two thousand seven well it was it was certainly this century um, Um, was was an incredibly inspiring campaign. Lots and lots of working-class women involved, single mothers, young women, older women, really impressive, inspiring campaign. Raising the campaign about housing immediately in um, Newham, but actually um, going much broader about the right for housing, and they made links with um, women in America, fighting for for decent housing and and all sorts of things. Other things on the screen, Sisters on Cost, uh, I think have been an incredibly inspirational direct action kind of organisation. They roll the sleeves up, they get stuck in, and they've been particularly important in raising... um, They're not a socialist feminist organisation, they don't describe themselves, but there's certainly a lot of socialist feminists involved, and they're certainly um, driven by defending working-class women, and they've taken on lots of fights around um, welfare cuts and... and, um, Cuts to services that women that women use um, since austerity, uh, domestic violence services and um, benefits cuts, and you know those are proper campaigns that women, working class women, can get involved in and change and influence. Um, my final um, slide, slide is. Um, a sort of montage of um, women um, striking and organising and being very angry. And I think the thing that I want to say about this is that um, being angry is the start of doing something. Um, But um, we all know it's not enough. We need to be angry, we need to be organised and we need to be equipped with a set of ideas. And we need to a set of ideas that can change the world. And um, the world is largely made up of working class people and working class women make up 50% of that. We have potential power, um, but strikes and protests won't do it alone. So um, it's about building on an incredible history that we have, learning the lessons from that history and um, educating ourselves with the ideas that can actually truly change the world. Because we can't have women's liberation under capitalism. Um, We can't have half of humanity being liberated. Uh, We need to to smash capitalism. We need to create a different kind of society. We need to create a socialist society. Um, In 1971, when the first Women's Liberation March took place um, for International Women's Day, on that very slitty cold day. Um, the women sang um, a, an old 1930s song probably, maybe 20s, uh, called um, Keep Young and Beautiful. They're, they were singing this ironically, they were taking the piss out, the pressures that women are under to look young and beautiful. And um, I found this fabulous um, banner thing from um, Sisters Uncut. She's beautiful when she's angry. And I think, All of the women in these um, photographs here look far more gorgeous and beautiful because of their anger, because that anger gives them um, dignity. Um, They're not passively taking the shit that's been thrown at them, the attacks that are happening to them. They're they're, they're getting angry, and um, with that comes the dignity of fighting back and saying, you can't do this to me, you can't do this to us, you've got to stop, and this is what we want. Um, so um, she is beautiful when she's angry but she's even more beautiful when she's organized and when she's educated with a set of ideas with the set of ideas that can change the world so no socialism without women's liberation and no women's liberation without socialism thank
0: you thanks jill um so for those of us who uh, um who joined us a bit late we did start a bit late um that's because we had um some Pricks, also known as men's rights activists, so-called, uh, joining us for the beginning of the meeting and we had to get rid of them. Um, but we're not going to let that put us off and um, Jill's just giving us a fantastic presentation. So hopefully you caught most of that. And now we're going to have our second speaker, Kelly, who's going to speak for about 15 minutes. Um,
2: yeah, so I'm, I'm Kelly. I'm also a member of uh, Workers' Liberty. Um, and yeah you know, I've edited Women's Fight Back and I also kind of helped convene the our socialist feminist reading group which is usually kind of a South London thing but in pandemic times can be a everybody thing including as far as Indonesia um for the Indonesian person in the in in the chat so um, um you know please do get involved in that I can post details um later um so I'm gonna kind of focus quite specifically on different things, although most of it is going to be about the Wages for Housework campaigns, so kind of about the concerns or the kind of feelings that Feminists that moved into the Women's Liberation Movement um, from revolutionary socialist or left uh, or socialist groups I kind of had towards those groups and their kind of reasons for kind of wanting to join an autonomous women's movement instead. I'll talk about the wages for housework campaign um, and I'm going to talk about kind of democracy um, within the women's liberation movement. I think all of these things do tie together. Um, I don't have any slides, I'm afraid, um, but I, I am going to kind of wave some books and stuff at you um, kind of as I'm talking, uh, which I can also post all of the PDFs for. Um, in the link later because we've been discussing them in the the reading group Um, so we have have them all there as well. Um, So if you kind of read personal accounts by socialist feminists in the kind of early years of the women's liberation movement um, it's kind of not long before you reach the kind of very heated debate about how just how autonomous should an autonomous women's movement be, um, especially amongst kind of socialist women or women that had kind of like long considered themselves to be part of the revolutionary or socialist left. Um, you know, many of these women felt alienated by a um, a left that they, you know, that's, they, that saw the cause of women's liberation as, as kind of a secondary one, treated their kind of calls for a, um, a feminist kind of perspective with disdain. Um, and, you know, women were often consigned practically to um, less glamorous, more laborious kind of tasks, so typing and distributing leaflets, providing refreshments at meetings, making posters and speaking in meetings um, and then kind of often only in an organisational capacity rather than kind of being the kind of political um, leaders. And, you know, when concerns were raised, they were kind of seen as personal and emotional um, up to to individual women and men to solve, not the fault of group you know not a kind of problem with the practice in general of of, of those groups or, or a political problem um and you know so one woman wrote in um a 1976 edition of red rag red rag is this is a photocopy and um, it's like a, it was a socialist feminist magazine that was edited primarily by but not completely by some communist party women um and it's very it's a very interesting read and again i've got all of the copies apart from one which I can share a link to in, in a minute because they are very, very interesting to look through. Um, so in this, in this article, she, she I thought it was worth quoting it because I think it's a good quote. Um, the only people who professed to be fighting for revolution were the left groups. Um, these were the very groups in which women had felt their own oppression and experienced directly their position as the typist, the social organiser, the tea maker and the liberated screw. So quite understandably, socialism became a dirty word. And, you know, they're... This wasn't a universal view. Um, lots of women stayed and fought for, you know, within the um within the revolutionary left, you know, workers' liberty um is uh, you know, comprised of many of those women. And um but these women saw themselves as revolutionaries, they wanted to overthrow the system and they found it, you know, and they were kind of they found there was this like continued throughout the entire kind of period of the, the women's integration movement where there's this bitter debate, kind of heated debate about how to what degree they should involve themselves in socialist groups or organise with men at all. And kind of this latter bit is probably is arguably the most just, like divi- um, kind of divisive or like decisive polarisation to emerge in the movement. And it's certainly one that kind of it's become quite famous for. You know, even half a century later, you kind of still there's the, the caricature of the kind of man hating feminist is probably a one that everyone's kind of um, familiar with and you know so in, t- in terms of questions of on autonomous women's movement um, one of the, the kind of debate and just that I wanted to focus on was the Wages for Housework campaign um, the Wages for Housework debate and uh, which was raised first as a paper, it was submitted as a paper to um, the 1972 Women's Liberation Conference in Manchester um, it was later published as this um, women the unions and work or what is not to be done um, and the reason why I have decided to focus on this is because it's, it's quite interesting you know to kind of look at the arguments they make around how do how we should re- like relate to the traditional labor movements trade unions um, which I think is interesting for us but also um, how the wages for housework kind of slogan has been kind of resurfaced and has become quite popular amongst sections of the left in Britain today and has kind of been, has been expanded um, quite substantially and I think that, that also is quite interesting and something that we should be thinking about um, and so that's, that's why I decided that this would be a good, a good thing to, to look at. So um, the Wages for Housework campaign is uh, when it was a conference it was called the Power of Women um, group Wages for Housework campaign Um, it was kind of you know it was part of an international campaign primarily kind of uh, you know had a significant kind of following in Italy and in the United States as well as Britain and uh, other other kind of key thinkers so Selma James um, is kind of considered to be the you know key um, individual kind of behind Wages for Housework or at least she's lasted here you know until today still Kind of um, running the campaign. Um, Selma James is considered to be the kind of the, the thinker behind w- wages of power's work in Britain. In Italy, it's Maria Rosa Della Costa. In the United States, it was Sylvia Federici. Obviously, there's lots of other women involved, um, but those are kind of like the names that are, writ- that are kind of written on a lot of the the things that were published, the books and the pamphlets and the that were published. Um, you know, just to kind of give you a slight like I don't know, his con- color to the kind of story um i thought i should quote from a guardian article which describes kind of like the reception of wages for housework in the movement because um, I, I i personally found it quite funny as well so um, to many the wages for housework campaign has come across like jehovah's witnesses open any door marked liberation and behind it is a woman with a wages for housework badge on her bosom ten thousand leaflets in her hands a fanatical gleam in her eye and her foot wedged in the firmly in the jam Within the movement they set up a high level of irritation. Eyes roll heavenwards, figures slump on seats as yet another campaigner leaps for the platform. And obviously, like as a as a, work, as a member of Works Liberty, it would probably take it would take a considerable lack of self-awareness for me to criticize them on the basis that they're unpopular. Um, or, that they, you know, or that they were kind of like determined campaigners in spite of their unpopular unpopularity. Um, but, you know, I thought I should I thought it was quite funny and also, you know, kind of gives you a, a sense of how they were received in the movement and, you know, others, and, you know, obviously people come from their own perspectives, but, you know, in a number of instances in Red Rag and in interviews that I've kind of read um, from other kind of women that were, that were involved in the time, they kind of seemed to see it as the wages of the housework versus everybody else divided. They certainly um, were not the most popular um, at the time. Um, so the basic thrust of the wages for housework argument um, is that kind of housework and other forms of reproductive labour, so that is labour that reproduces the workforce and makes it kind of fit for purpose under kind of capitalism. Um, are these these forms of reproductive labour is necessary for the continued existence of the for the reproduction of the capital relation. Capitalism could not exist without it. Um, you know, and yet these types of Work um, across the world, most often done by women, to this day, um, is undervalued and they say underpaid. So when capital pays husbands, they get two workers, not one. Is something is a is a quote from, from from the paper that she submitted in 1972. Um, you know they and they demand wage wages for housework, and the reason behind the demand is twofold. So firstly, it's quite simple: women need money and money that is theirs for in order for them to have independence. Um, and because they've earned it, it's, it's just and it's right that they should get paid. Um, but primarily, um, yeah, you know, they've they've earned it, and this demand kind of heralds from a time where the wage gap was much sharper, um, where families relied on male breadwinners, um, when you know the kind of double burden, which obviously still very much exists, was kind of I guess. More sharply felt because um, they, the way, you know, the, because the wage gap was 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 sharper, and because um, I don't know, there was a a sharper divide between kind of husband and wife, and who does the housework and domestic and domestic work than compared to, um, you know, so. But there, I think the, there's another element to this, which um, at least has been described to me by Selma James when I have talked to her about this. Is uh, at least what they what they consider the most important ele- element of it now, and it's this element which has been taken up by the left now as well, um, which is that the motivation for raising the demand of wages for housework um, is that it's a provocation. Um, it highlights the fact that it is work, you know, because. We, the way that we understand work is that it receives a wage and so therefore if we demand that it it's given a wage people will get that it is it is work this is labor um i'll come back to this kind of in in, in a moment so in her paper um selma james kind of lambasts the trade union movement um you know not compl- not not unreasonably um for Helping to maintain the gender pay gap by not giving kind of equal prep pay um, campaigners, or campaigns, or demands priority, um, and for demands it raising demands for like percentage pay rises, you know, which actually would serve serves to kind of expand the pay gap rather than close it, um, and for avoiding the question of equal pay altogether because it will upset the men, um, and for not making the effort efforts to kind of unionize um, women women work, workers, um, but what she challenges them on the most is that they don't recognise housework as work, Um, and so I've got a quote here. Um, The union prevents the organisation of housewives by following organizationally the way that capital is organised, a fragmented class divided into those who have wages and those who don't. The unemployed, the old, the in and housewives are wageless, so the unions ignore us and thereby separate us from each other and from the wage. That is, they structurally make a generalized struggle impossible because the most concentrated potential power of the class is at the point of production of commodities. The unions have convinced the wageless that only at that point can a struggle be waged at all. Um, And kind of the rest of the argument of the paper kind of I think be summarised as as follows: that socialists, socialist feminists, should not sell women the myth that finds liberation in work. Um, You know the idea that if you if we get all of our women, and you know, get women in the workplace, get them to join the union, then, then suddenly they're they're going to be in a kind of utopia, and that's and that's that's going to be great. Um, or that they will find comrades in the trade union movement. Um, that there is a need for an autonomous women's movement centred on communities and on housewives, um, and that the demand for wages for housework will cut across the public-private divide and give women the means to live independently and you know empower women with the knowledge that they are. Central to capitalism, um, just like men producing commodities in factories, um, it raises demands other than um, wages for housework. So, um, a shorter working week, a garret, and actually the wages of housework demand was raised first as a garret as a guaranteed income for all. So, you know you can see the relationship with the UBI demand today, um, equal pay for all, an end to price rises. Free community-controlled child, child care for all. Um, so critics at the time, and as I've said, there were many of them. Um, and actually, Red Rag, which I've talked about, is they, they devoted their entire second issue to criticising criticising summer James's paper. Um, and it's it's an interesting read. Um, but they're kind of I'm going to try and do it briefly. Um, you know, they argued against. Wages, of housework, for I think two main reasons: um, the dismissal of the labour movement, which I think a lot of people in this chat and certainly I um, agree with. Um, the um, you know the implicate basically the, the suggestion that women should just avoid trade unions completely because they're full of men that don't care, um, and that can, we should focus our energies on organised communities or households, um, and this could kind of like replace work. Um, you know, people, and actually people might recognise echoes of this, of this particular debate and current kind of stuff about social movements versus labour movement as a starting point or kind of main focus for working class or, or struggle or the left. Um, and the second key point that they make, so I'm, I'm primarily working from a, an article in Red Rag by Sheila Robotham, um, whom people m- may well have heard of. Um, so the second key argument that they make is that it's no good raising a demand for, peop- for paying people to do housework because this doesn't socialise housework, it doesn't break kind of like break down the public bri- private divide or break women out of the kind of domestic sla- like situation of domestic slavery, and rather it kind of confirms the isolation of the, of the houseworker in a nuclear home. It doesn't connect those who are responsible for the reproduction. Of the workforce to wage workers in, in commodity production doesn't connect those struggles. Rather, it just tries to replace one with the other, um, which again I think is is a fair um, criticism. So you know, in in lots of ways, that things have that you know this uh, forum is titled "50 Years of Women's Liberation," which kind of gives the impression that we're going to talk about everything from then until now, which we can't do. But I do want to talk about now. Um, so. In lots of ways, things have changed quite a lot. so the paper discusses the problem of women not being very well organized and men making up the vast majority of trade union members. This is not the case anymore. Um, you know actually, in terms of them saying that women weren't very well organized is interesting, and you know, especially considering the kind of very inspiring kind of like rundown of things that were happening that Jill kind of talked about um, before, you know there were a lot of struggles in, the <laughs> in this period, many involving um, some very impressive women um you know, and trade union membership now is is very low um, generally, so I suppose it's still the case that women are not very well organized um, but whereas trade union membership amongst men is falling um, it's rising amongst the women and I, I believe that women um, comprise the majority of um, actually they must yet yeah, they comprise the majority of uh, trade union members and uh, high like, uh, quite significantly actually in a uh, higher proportion of women workers are trade union members compared to, to men workers um, in Britain today. Um, the unions are still bureaucratised and male dominated and in many ways they're not political, um, let alone feminist. Um, you know, a kind of example that kind of springs to mind is a few years ago I was trying to get um, back to the union that I was organising, like I, I was a member of. and um, in the picture house strike, the picture house cinema workers strike through. Um, we tried to get a uh, strike to take place on International Women's Day. Um, we announced it, and then they, they, the the union cancelled it because they decided that it was too political. We wanted to kind of make use it as an opportunity to make the case about how women, you know, comp- uh, you know, form a s- significant majority of um, low-paid precarious workers, and um, you know, the genders the politics of kind of low pay precarious work. Um and they decided that it was too political and cancelled it um without any reference to um the membership. Uh we kind of kicked off the next year we managed to get them to agree to an international women's day strike. Um it was fantastic. Uh we kind of collaborated with you know sex workers and um you know other kind of feminists to kind of have a very big uh, kind of demonstration outside um, one of our Pitch House cinemas, so, but I, you know, I, I bring this up because, you know, a lot of the criticisms she has of the trade union movement can be levelled here, the trade union movement today It is not a paradise for women to be organising in it is not, they are not what we want them to be um, but nevertheless, I think um, she, she was wrong then and she, she's wrong now, uh, or they're wrong they were wrong then and, and they're wrong no. Um, very quickly, I realise I'm probably I'm probably going a bit over time. Um, so, an- another.